whether it's a river runs through it or the oxbow incident, the last best place or legends of the fall, why is it that so many of the books that have defined the American West come from the same place? This is Breakfast in Montana. I'm Russell Rowland. And I'm Aaron Parrott. And we're going to spend the next half hour talking about two books from Montana, one from the past and one from the present, in an effort to understand what it is about this magical state that inspires so much incredible writing and so many memorable books. So pour yourself a good strong cup of coffee and spread some huckleberry jam on your toast. And welcome to Breakfast in Montana. Welcome to Breakfast in Montana. I'm Russell Rowland. I'm Aaron Parrott. And uh, before we get into the uh, books that we're going to talk about this time, we uh, want to thank some sponsors. We've got uh, the Isle of Books in Bozeman donated to our cause, and also the Chapter One Bookstore in Hamilton has uh, become a sponsor. Many thanks. Yes. We appreciate it. So this uh, episode, we've got a pretty exciting lineup here. We're going to talk about an American classic, A River Runs Through It by Norman McLean, and and also Home Waters, the new memoir by his son John. I do not fish alone on the Blackfoot River, ever, even though I now I mostly fish it by myself. When I'm on the water, and especially when no one else is around, I feel the presence of the generations of my family whose stories run through it. Memory can and should be more than a bridge to the past. It's also a way to see yourself as a thread in a broad fabric long in the making. I walked over to a big snag lying on the bank up near the high water mark. The river had stripped off the bark and polished the tree trunk to a bone white smoothness. A forked branch stuck up from the snag, and I sat on the trunk and leaned back into the branch. I was comfortable there. Strobe-like images of a fish's glaring eye, an iridescent strip of scarlet and a salmon-sized head flashed in my mind's eye. I'd never seen a Blackfoot rainbow that big before. Never. The present moment slowly came back into focus. A turquoise sky, wind-stripped of clouds, bright sparkling sunshine, and the endlessly moving river. Life doesn't stop when you reach a peak. It moves on as before, just as a river does after a fight with a big fish. On a day like this, though, and after a rainbow trout like that one, the river merged the life of the spirit with the act of fly fishing, a legacy endlessly renewed by the passage of waters. Hmm. Home waters. Um, what prompted the book, and were you uh, at all apprehensive about taking on this project? Well, it didn't start out as uh, Home Waters, the book that emerged. It started out as a fishing story, hmm. and the story of a big fish, uh, kind of the fish of a lifetime. Uh, I tied into this monster rainbow on the Muchmore Hole, which is the one identifiable hole on the Blackfoot from a river runs through it. I caught this, uh, tied into this enormous uh, rainbow. And a f friend of mine was with me who owns the ranch on that side of the Muchmore Hole, and we kind of battled it together. 
So a few days later, he called me up and said, John, would you mind writing that story for the Chicago Anglers Group, of which I'm a member? That's a small group. We'd have a little newsletter. I thought, you know, I'll, at minimum, I owe him that, and it sounds like it would be fun. So I wrote the story for the Anglers Group. And, you know, one and done. And I was talking about it and laughing about it with a friend of mine in Sealy Lake, Jenny Rohrer. And she said, look, why don't you write that for Big Sky Journal? That sounds like a really good Montana story. You know, the, the hole where you were fishing is in the river runs through it. And we all know about that. I said, okay. And uh, she put me in touch with the editor and he said, okay. And so I wrote the story for Big Sky Journal. And again, you know, two and done. <laughs> I'm out of here. And a couple of years later, uh, an editor from New York named Peter Hubbard from Harper Collins was vacationing in Livingston, picked up a tattered old copy of the Big Sky Journal, and there was this story. And he called me up and he said, would you like to do a book? And I said, well, I don't know. What kind of a book are we talking about? He said, well, I'd like a nostalgic book, uh, you know, not soppy or sentimental, but something that you know, gives people a good feeling hmm. about the West. And I thought about that for a while and agreed to do it. Uh, one of the reasons I agreed is that it was for negative reasons. Uh, I had absolutely no intention and, in fact, did not write some vicious uh, book about all the inner workings of a family and all the ugly stuff and so on and so forth, which is the, what uh, memoirs are like these days. You have a famous parent and you just try to rip them up for some imagined cruelty uh, when you were young. You know, if you've been a parent, you know, hey, we all make a couple of mistakes. Mm -hmm. uh, but when you're an adult, uh, you realize that this, this mistakes are inevitable. And if you live a life as, as long as I have anyway, uh, you learn to forgive. Uh, so I started working on the book. And I discovered very quickly that uh, I had a lot of material to work with. I had been writing pieces and parts of this book for many decades, mm. like about four decades. I was looking at one paragraph uh, the other evening and saw sentences from four different decades hmm. uh, in that same paragraph. Wow. Uh, I was back in Chicago doing a final tour with the Chicago Tribune, uh, the last years of my dad's life. Most of my career as a newspaper man was uh, in the Washington, D.C. Bureau. And I became kind of the uh, default uh, spokesperson for the family. Some trout group would call up and say, we want to give Norman a prize. Can he come? And he, he was at a place where he couldn't do that. And so I would do it. And I'd write something. Uh, and then the generation, my father's generation, began to uh, eclipse. And I would write eulogies for him. Uh, I wrote the obituaries for both my parents. Uh, that's something you do as a newspaper man. That's, that's your function in a family. Uh, it's healthy. It's not grotesque. But I wrote uh, eulogies for uh, a number of people in the book. Uh, Gene and then George Kuhnenberg's. Uh, I wrote Ken Burns's obituary. And I gave these talks, and I saved them. Uh, and I looked at everything I had, and it was pretty substantial. So I started writing the book. Then it became, took on these odd shapes where you start, actually, the book starts in 1806 in terms of 
uh, dating it with the Meriwether Lewis journey through the Blackfoot Valley, and it continues on into the 21st century, almost to the present day. Uh, in fact, to the present day and beyond the present day. So thinking about it as a memoir, to me, was wrong. And I call it, don't call it that, I call it a chronicle. Uh, a memoir is mostly about me. This is not mostly about me. I'm in there, but uh, I'm not what holds this together. I'm one of the number of things that hold it together. What you've got is a great sweep of time and a family, both the McLeans and the Burnses, uh, who come into the country in the latter part of the 19th century, who establish themselves and become generational. What holds them together? You know, what keeps this thing going? And that vision has been what, to me, holds the book together. Uh, there is a sense of place here, the importance of place. Partly the cabin uh, at Seely Lake, uh, which we've had now, uh, is coming up on the 100th anniversary of the lease mm. on August 8th. That's an enormous amount of time for anything in Montana. You know, this is a uh, new country out here. But here we are in uh, the first quarter uh, of the 21st century, and I'm going back to the early 19th century and uh, the late 19th century. What, what has made it work uh, for a family? What has given us a sense of uh, our own culture and ourselves? Uh, a lot of families lose that. Uh, we haven't lost it. And I think that, that if that book has a message, that's it. That, you know, the natural world is very important. You can connect to it. Uh, it can sustain you, it can define you. Uh, you can have a place uh, that, that helps with that, as we do. It's partly the cabin at Seedley Lake, but it's partly Wolf Creek, uh, it's partly Missoula, there, there are a lot of things. So that had to be worked in to hold everything together. And that was the technical challenge with the book, how to make some very different parts uh, function together. and. Uh, the editor, Peter Hubbard, and I worked very hard to make that happen. Now, as the book developed, uh, it became clear that there was a lot of territory that I was covering that was also covered in A River Runs Through It. Mm -hmm. And if you take on first Young Men and Fire, which I did uh, as a fire writer, and then if you take on A River Runs Through It, you're either very foolish or capable of running blind for a while because it's terrifying. And uh, if you're terrified, you can't work, and there's a lot of work to be done. So I'd, I had a lot of, lot of fear the first time out with Young Men on Fire. Uh, I was writing a book about a fire that was very similar to Man Gulch. Uh, my father's book by then was becoming a classic. Uh, I was just starting as a book writer. Uh, I was in my early 50s, he'd been in his 70s, totally different perspectives. But I accommodated for that, and I made the style of Fire on the Mountain, which was my first book, as different as I could make it from my father's style. Uh, I made it very straightforward, no frills, no fancy stuff, and I kept myself entirely out of it. My father was a master at inserting himself into stories. He's in every story he ever wrote. Uh, I am not. But uh, so fine. So I got over the fear of that. Uh, I took my lumps and bumps, uh, and I took the occasional pat on the back uh, for having done that. Fire on the Mountain is still around uh, over two decades after it was published. 
Uh, it still has a wonderful reputation in the fire community. Not everyone loves it. I understand that because it's critical of some things. But it is a standard work within fire literature, and so are my other books. So I had a certain position by the time I took on Home Waters. One thing I'm curious about is the impetus to write the book. Yeah. You know, given that the river runs through it is such a iconic book in the Montana canon. I mean, I can't think of a of a worthier person to write it or a yeah. worthier result. Right. Yeah. But it's, wouldn't you be terrified to, to yeah. try to do something like that? Yeah, absolutely. Makes me think of one of my favorite quotes ever from an interview with an author, Barry Lopez. Bill Moyers was interviewing him one time, and he he said. If I'm not scared to death when I'm starting a new book, I know it's not going to be any good. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And frankly, I never was scared. I probably should have been. <laughs> but I was working on another book at the same time, a very demanding one that I haven't finished yet. And I had so much to do that I didn't have time to get scared. Um, I didn't consciously follow A River Runs Through It except in one way. And that one way was in illustrations. Uh, you've got a copy of the Little Blue Book, the first edition of A River Runs Through It on the table here. And it's a very beautiful edition. It's the one that my dad put together uh, and nurtured and for which he provided images that became wood engravings. <coughs> and they're very handsome. Uh, they're not closely tied to the text, but they're, uh, they're part of the book and an important part. So I said to my editor, uh, Peter Hubbard, I said, why don't we do wood engravings for the chapters <clears throat> for Home Waters <clears throat> in conscious imitation of a river runs through it? I mean, if you're going to be compared, let's, <laughs> let's go for it. And uh, <clears throat> so he went to his lords and masters at HarperCollins. It's, it's a very serious undertaking to do something like this. Uh, in terms of the amount of work involved, in terms of the amount of uh, financial commitment involved. And HarperCollins said, yes, we'll do it. And we did it. We, Peter found this uh, illustrator, Wesley Bates, who understood what the book was about. Uh, we talked to him about a scene up in a mountain lake where you can't really fish from the, the bank because the trees are so close to the bank on those little high mountain lakes. You gotta get on a raft or wade out up to your, your, your lobes or something. You have to get away from the bank. And he instantly understood that because uh, he'd been there. He's a Canadian, he'd been around. And instead of doing what was done with The River Runs Through It where the illustrations are not tied to the text, the illustrations in Home Waters are all tied directly to the text. And you can tell little stories about them uh, that have special meaning. There is, for example, a wood engraving of the, from the front porch of the cabin looking out at Seely Lake. And there's a chair there with a lamb chop uh, desk uh, table attached to it. That happens to be the chair and the desk table where my father wrote a large part of a river runs through it. Uh, it doesn't say that, but I know that, and mm -hmm. you know, secret little thing that people can can get attached to. So I figured, having won that fight, uh, and it wasn't a fight. I mean, they were on board. I mean, they liked it. Well, having uh, 
found everyone agreeable to this initial grandiose idea that worked. I decided to stay on a roll. <laughs> I said, you know what we really need to in here is a map. Uh, we need a map of, that has every place where that was important in the book, on uh, a map of Montana. And it should have a little old-fashioned feel to it, but it should not be some funky, uh, clownish act. It should be a serious map. And so Peter Hubbard found uh, a map maker who did, I think, a beautiful job. And it's in the front of the book and in the back of the book. And all the places are identified. I did a signing last night. Uh, and I had people last night asking me to sign at specific places mm. on the map because they lived there or they were special places to them. And I thought that was really cool. <laughs> yeah, that really is an awesome map. So I figured, oh, hey, we're on a roll. Let's keep this thing going. And I said, well, what about photographs? Because, you know, this is a very photogenic uh, subject. And uh, there are choices with photographs in a book. You can have what's called scatter art, where you put black and white art, uh, scatter it through the book. And it's the cheap way to go. Uh, and it can be a very effective way to go. Then there is uh, a folio. And you include a folio, it has to be 8 or 16 pages because of the way paper bends. Uh, so I said, why don't we try for color, which is really expensive. Uh, and that's all I said. And Peter, on his own, went to 16 pages, and it's color, and some black and white where the actual photographs are, are black and white. And it's a very attractive photo gallery. So we wound up with all this stuff. And then he said, you know, what are we going to do for a cover? I said, well, that's easy. I've got this uh, photograph that my friend Alec Underwood took of the Blackfoot River, and it's very mysterious, and uh, it kind of is the mood of the book. So he looked at it, and he said, you're right, we'll do it. And then he, on his own, wrapped it around so it's not only the front, it's the back of the, of the cover, too. And then we did little special things. Like that's in A River Runs Through It, too, or something similar, There's something similar to that, and what's in A River Runs Through It, what you're pointing to is an image, an iconic image of a fishing fly. And it's on the cover twice, and it's in every chapter. Uh, it is uh, an image taken from one of George Kuhnenberg's flies. And on the cover, I, I think it's the, the cork grasshopper. In A River Runs Through It, there is an image of the bunion bug, Right. Uh, Paul Bunyan's bunion bug. So again, there's a little echo there. Uh, but we used George's fly instead because he's in the book. Paul Bunyan's in the book too. Uh, but George was a family friend. So that was the package that we had. And in the end, I think that that vision, uh, for me, it works. That you come out of it with a sense that you know something really held these very disparate people together. Uh, and it was Montana, and it was the cabin, it was the love of the outdoors, it was fishing. You can make a whole list if you want to. But what you get down to uh, is a sense of belonging. I think that that's missing, has been missing uh, in this country for a lot of people for a long time. I don't mean to be grandiose or pretentious and say, John McLean is going to restore America's sense of itself. I'm not. But if I can help people in the aftermath of the pandemic continue on the path that many have chosen, which is to re-engage with the natural world and to realize the importance to them of a sense of family, of their own family, because they have been deprived of it, then I will be very glad if the book helps a little with that. 
One thing I, th in rereading A River Runs Through It, something that I didn't notice, you know, in previous reads, but since you brought it up, the fact that Norman was the older brother and the way he casts that relationship in the book is, uh, you know, he, ma he makes a point of saying, I never called him my kid brother. I, uh, mm. He didn't want to be thought of as, you know, the younger. Mm. It was just interesting, the dynamic. Yeah. There. It's almost like they were twins or something. Yeah. And another interesting thing about the whole dynamic between the, the men, too, um, and this was something I noticed in Paul's book, or I mean uh, John's book. Uh, early on, there's a scene where Norman is teaching this friend of theirs, this family friend of theirs, up at the cabin to fish. And they're out fishing this river, and, you know, they're, they're out there for hours, and, and they never catch a thing. And the guy finds out later that, that Norman knew they weren't, I mean, the time of day, the place where they were, everything about it was um, just not conducive to catching fish that day. But he, he didn't care. He was out there teaching him. <laughs> right. Like, that was, that was the whole purpose of that particular outing. And uh, so there's a sense in both of these books, to me, that's really powerful that, like, there's a certain way of doing things, and you learn to do it right. You follow those guidelines. Uh, did you get that too? Like there's a strong sense of the, the way things should be done. Oh, for sure. And um, Norman, at least, in The River Runs Through It, attributes it alternatively to the Scots heritage and mm -hmm. Presbyterian upbringing. Yeah. So um, I'm anxious to ask John about that. Yeah, that'll be interesting. <laughs> There's a specific way of doing things, and then it changes, and then there's another specific right. way of doing things. This <laughs> yes. is a characteristic of religion from time immemorial, sure. and I think that that's where it comes from, along with some other character traits. Mm -hmm. um, it has made for difficulties, and it has made for opening avenues. I mean, if you stick to something, if you think there's one way to do it, and you stick to that one way, you surprise yourself and get good at it. Mm -hmm. um, and that's true of writing. I mean, I've been writing for over 60 years. And a lot of that time I wasn't changing. I was trying to fit into a specific way of doing things and to repeat it until I got good at it. Mm. And that happened with Home Waters. When I talk about the kind of scrapbook I had of all these things uh, that I had written beforehand, some of them have been rewritten half a dozen times uh, and wound up being rewritten 50 times. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. Right. Trying to achieve something that was seen but not achieved, and then finally getting there. I think one of the interesting parts of both Home Waters and River Runs Through It is my father and I both did these works when we were in our 70s, me in my very late 70s, I'm 78. My dad was four, 74 when uh, he published A River Runs Through It. It was his first book. Right. This is my sixth, so I'm, but it's the first one I've done like this. And I, I, I was trying to think about this. Why did we wait so long? And I think one reason we waited so long is we waited until we could get it right. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a story in Home Waters about the first time I ever fished with my father and caught a fish. And I was just a little boy. I was seven years old. 
And after I quit the Chicago Tribune to write Fire on the Mountain in the mid-1990s, I spent an awful lot of time in Montana at the cabin at Sealy Lake. And I would go to the place where this happened mm-hmm. over and over again. And I would remember all the details. And then I would go back to the cabin and sit down and try to write it. And I couldn't write it. Hmm. It was just too important. It was one of the best days of my life. I think there is a time to refrain from writing something that is as personal and important as that trip was to me. And as large parts of a river runs through it were to my father. He tried to write the story of his brother Paul over and over again. And it's in the back stories uh, at the back of a river runs through it. And as he said, it was a failure uh, in a lot of ways. They can be good stories, but they didn't satisfy what was driving him, which was to deal with Paul's murder. And then finally, in his 70s, after he had made a lot of attempts that failed, he did it. And it couldn't have happened earlier, Hmm. or at least it didn't happen earlier, despite a great deal of effort. Hmm. So I think that that's part of the whole process of getting it right, if you Mm. you will, that you have something you want to do. You know that there's a right way to do it, although you can't see exactly how that's going to happen. And you may have to refrain for a time, and then there is a correct time to do it. When I sat down with home waters at the point where I should write the story of my first fishing trip with my father at the age of seven, it just flowed right out of me. Wow. Hmm. A story that had been bottled up for 25 years. One reason it did was during that 25 years, I had gone over every single detail many, many times. I knew what it smelled like. I knew what the river felt like. I knew what the rocks in the river looked like, how the willows behaved when the hailstorm hit. I knew it cold mm-hmm. so that there wasn't any hesitation about writing it. It took, you know, time to get it down and rewrite it and get it right and all the rest of that stuff. But it was just a normal writing process because the time had come. Mm-hmm. That's interesting that you mentioned the refraining part because um, one of the things that really struck me when I read River runs through it for the this time was how restrained the description of Paul's murder was, um, and to me that was part of the reason it's so powerful is because he didn't go into great detail about what happened and you know turn it into like a murder mystery. It was more about just this is the and it was um, such a short passage at the very end that to me it it was a uh, it was a culmination of the whole book that, that you you know how important this person is to the people in the book, especially Norman. And this thing happens and it's just like, bam. Um, and I, I thought it was brilliant that he kept the description of that so short. So refraining, you know. It seems I think that's like, one of the most successful parts, both of the yeah. book and the movie, 
Um, I'm I like the movie, which you know, if you're a fisherman, you're not supposed to. You're supposed to say, "Oh, well, the book is the book." <laughs> All this kind of very fairy stuff. I uh, was wor- wondering whether you th- what you thought about the movie. Well, I, the reason I like the movie so much is that uh, a whole family can watch it, and they do. Yeah, you know, we're almost 25 years, or maybe 25 years into it, and it's still a very popular movie. But the parents, uh, the adults, can watch it, and there's plenty of adult content. Mm-hmm. But the kids can watch it, too. They identify with Paul. They like him. They know he's charming uh, and young and wild. And they know that this kind of behavior <coughs> cannot be sustained, whether they articulate that at their young age or not. And when, in the end, he meets his unhappy end, they do not have to witness the violence. Mm-hmm. And Redford kept that in the movie, and he did a wonderful job in a lot of ways, uh, and that was one of them. Uh, It's in the book, it's in the movie. However, there is an aftermath of that, which is that Paul's death was dealt with uh, somewhat meretriciously. He's described as a guy who never left Montana, who was uh, beaten to death in Montana because of his gambling debts, which gives some kind of meaning to it. You know, the Montana boy who meets a kind of an artistically perfect end, although it's a bad end. That's not true. That's not what happened. Right. Uh, And a kind of cult grew up about Paul, both pro and con, mostly con uh, of people. It got so bad at one point that some guy wrote into a cousin, distant cousin of mine and said, well, let me tell you something. I'm the guy who murdered Paul McClane. Jeez. You know, this kind of really ugly, sick, conspiratorial stuff. So when I was writing Home Waters, uh, one of the things I realized that I had uh, was an enormous cache of material uh, about Paul's murder. I had made it my business to find out about it. Paul has been a shadow person my entire life. Uh, identified with him when I was a little boy. Uh, they were going to name me Paul. Thank God my mother intervened and stopped that. <laughs> uh, I became a newspaper man like him. I fish. Uh, he was a fisherman. There are other parallels uh, and so on. But he died before you were born. He died before I was born. That's correct. I never knew him in the flesh. And that was always uh, added to the mystery. You know, he would be the great master fisherman. And, you know, as I got older, I said, well, you know, that's nice, but uh, where is this guy? Mm-hmm. You know, bring him on. Give him a rod. Give me a rod. Let's go out and see who wins. Maybe he's <laughs> going to take me. I mean, I'm going to have a couple of points on him. And it never happened because the, Paul was never there. So when I did this last tour in Chicago in the late 80s and into the early 90s, uh, I interviewed a lot of people who knew Paul, mm. <laughs> including his, his first boss at the University of Chicago Press. And what had actually happened? Uh, with his murder and what had actually happened with his life. Well, he didn't stay in Montana. He went to Dartmouth for three years uh, and finally earned an undergraduate degree from Dartmouth. Uh, Then he went back to Montana and worked as a newspaper man. He had a wonderful job working for the Helena Independent Record, a kind of job that you can make a career out of very easily. He was the uh, state house reporter. He was covered in the legislative sessions in 1933, 35, and 37. He did a good job. He was um, a well-known slash semi-notorious character who got in a lot of fistfights, some of which were uh, memorialized in the Helena Independent Record admiringly. 
Um, some guys tried to stop him from investigating uh, a break-in at the Capitol, and he got in a fistfight with him. Mm. Well, good for him. Yeah. Uh, it was a different day, and uh, good on you, Paul. But his death happened in a particular way, and there was documents available about it, and available to me, some of them, uh, because I was, by the time my father was gone, I was his closest living relative. And so I got the documents, and I got the clips and from the Tribune and elsewhere, and all the rest of it, and I had personal accounts of this. And so when I decided to set it down in home waters, I decided two things. I wouldn't be nasty about it or ghoulish about it. Uh, and I would try to do what River Runs Through It and the movie and book did well, which is keep the ultimate violence uh, off the screen. Uh, but I was going to do more with it because I wanted to show what can be known for sure mm. about his murder and what cannot be known for sure about his murder. It was not, I think, uh, retribution for gambling debts or that he was supposed to be an investigator for the University of Chicago investigating uh, crime and immorality on the South Side. He didn't know anything about that. He'd been in Chicago for a little over a year. They had people who did that. His boss said that's laughable. It's a silly theory. Uh, he was never doing that kind of thing. Mm. Uh, what was he doing? And it became, frankly, a, a more meaningless death mm. than it is in the book or the movie because it wasn't attached to anything other than his bad behavior. Hmm. Uh, not gambling or anything, it's just wandering around on a Sunday night when he had no business doing that. Hmm. That's not his legacy. And I deal with his legacy, half of it, in Home Waters. And it's very important because it's very positive. After A River Runs Through It came out, my dad got a lot of fan mail. And some of it was from people who had siblings, like Paul, whether it was a brother or a sister. They were wayward. And they, the writer of the fan mail letter, had offered something of themselves to this sibling to try to bring them out of the circle of doom uh, that they were in. And they had failed. The loved one had gone on with bad behavior and either just kept it up or had come to a bad end, as mm -hmm. Paul did. And what they were expressing in the fan mail was a sense that their agony had been recognized and that it had been elevated uh, to an eloquent level hmm. and that they felt now some sense of relief because compassion had been directed to them. And that's terrifically important uh, for people to know that they are part of a broader community and to have sympathy uh, for being part of that community. That's half of Paul's legacy. And I'm, as I say, I think it's a very fine legacy to have. The other half is A River Runs Through It, Young Men in Fire, Fire on the Mountain, all my other books, including Home Waters. None of these books would have been written unless Paul had been murdered. <laughs> they, we might have written different books. I don't know. I mean, my dad waited till, until he was, I say, he was 74 when River Runs Through It came out, and it wasn't even, it's a 104-page uh, story. Uh, would he have ever written a book? He tried time and again, and uh, couldn't handle it. But he handled this, and then he got into Young Men on Fire and uh, struggled with it and struggled with it for over a, well over a decade. Didn't 
have it in a form where he would let it go to the publisher, I think is the way to say it. Mm. We took it to the publisher, and they said, this is the way books come in. Uh, some things need to be reordered, uh, and so on. It's going to take a lot of work, but there's a, a good book there. And the final judgment on it uh, came many years later from the editor, Alan Thomas, who gave a talk uh, about Young Men and Fire, the conclusion of which was, uh, you can have a great book that has great flaws, and Young Men and Fire has some serious flaws, but it is a great book. I would not have started uh, my writing, book writing career as early as I did for sure. I mean, I quit the Tribune when I was 52. I had this fire that was similar to Man Gulch, uh, and that got me out of the paper and onto a, a writing career. None of that would have happened, mm -hmm. uh, absent Paul. So he is still present with us in a very positive way. And I think it's important to recognize that as part of him, mm -hmm. because he did struggle, and he failed. Uh, as a person. Uh, he lost or left his job in Helena. There could have been a career job. I don't think he ever had uh, a warm, loving, sustainable relationship with a woman except for his mother and my mother. Uh, he and my mother were soulmates. But he didn't have girlfriends that you know he really could have established a whole life with. Hmm. So for me, there is a third legacy and it isn't just getting me into the newspaper business and making that a natural place for me and encouraging me as a fisherman. It is also a lot of negatives. These are things you don't do hmm. because they will get you in very serious trouble. And that has been a guide on in my life. Uh, I've been very fortunate in having married a woman uh, who is my best friend. And uh, my life wouldn't have been possible without her. And we've been married for over 50 years. And other things like that happen, where I've got five grandchildren, two wonderful sons, we're friends, as well as being fathers and sons. So a lot of that comes from Paul, uh, as lessons learned. That's kind of an impressive legacy. Yeah. I wonder if you have some perspective on, you know, just how Montana has, how the Blackfoot has changed in your lifetime and how you view all that. Well, the Blackfoot isn't the river of my youth, obviously. It was a mixed uh, report card on the Blackfoot uh, before the book and the movie. Uh, the Blackfoot was in very bad shape at the time the uh, movie came out. Uh, they'd stopped doing fish counts. Uh, it was an open sewer for cattle. Uh, the tributaries had been channelized uh, by time and neglect. There had been a dam at the headwaters, the Mycorse Dam, that had collapsed, and the river had been inundated with cadmium and poisonous stuff. There were years we didn't fish it uh, after that dam burst. Mm. And other bad things happened. The book, and especially the movie, contributed to a great revival of the Blackfoot River as a fishery. Uh, money poured in from the top, uh, sometimes from governments, sometimes from uh, groups and whatnot. And the governments made a very wise decision to give the money to the Big Blackfoot chapter of Trout Unlimited and the Blackfoot Challenge so that they could immediately implement projects rather than going through some elaborate EIS requirement. And it worked because the two groups, uh, TU and the Challenge, went to local legacy landowners, to ranchers, to people who had a stake in this, 
and said, look, you know, you've got a tributary on your ranch. It runs straight as an arrow. It isn't holding any fish. They can't spawn there. Can we come in and work on the tributary? Well, I don't know. I don't know about that. What are you going to do? Who's going to do it? And what would happen, this is a metaphorical anecdote, but it's the kind of thing that happened. Uh, a rancher would initially be uh, skeptical of the whole thing, then allow it to happen. He would notice that instead of having out-of-state vans with people in uniforms from Utah or New Mexico show up, it was people he knew, mm -hmm. uh, local people dressed in normal clothes, working hard. And they would go to work and they would run out of supplies. And then he would look down and say, well, you need a couple of rails to finish that job. I got a couple over behind the barn. Let me go get them. And it worked. Working with local people helps. It makes things go. And uh, that has become a, a national model now for uh, how to restore a river. At the same time that happened, the Blackfoot became this enormously popular destination point. And today it is being loved to death. Yeah. There are way, way too many boats out there. There are too many bank fishermen. There are no regulations that amount to anything. Every time there's too much use, uh, the state authorities say, well, we'll build another wilderness campsite or we'll put in another uh, put-in spot. The other day there were 100 rigs and more at the Russell Gates put-in. Wow. The Madison and the Missouri cannot handle that kind of pressure. I went down there with a crew to do a film for the, uh, for the book, and it was in the afternoon. I thought, gee, this is wonderful. I can stick around and get the evening rise. One of my favorite holes is right near here. And we had to stop every five minutes on the shoot because a boat showed up. Mm. And when we were done, uh, I thought, well, it's just going to go on like this. Uh, it's the middle of the day. You know, Usually the boats don't come in until 4 or 5 o'clock. I said, I'm not going to stick around for this. I'm not going to get hammered this way. This isn't the Blackfoot that I knew. Mm -hmm. Now, I can, if I really work at it, there are places I can go when I get the old feeling. Uh, but you have to know where to go. Your timing has to be right. Uh, and it's rare. Uh, now, too, let's face it, we're in the midst of a, a climate change uh, catastrophe with this heat uh, wave that's over the Pacific Northwest and Montana. Normally, this time of year would be cool, rainy, uh, windy in Montana. You have now temperatures of 100 uh, in northwestern Montana. There's not a cloud in the sky day after day after day. And the rivers are still full of boats and fishermen. Uh, they don't stop. They started introducing hoot owl requirements on some rivers. It's going to be all over the state by August. So it's a double-edged sword. Mm -hmm. It restored the river but it invited a kind of use that has not been dealt with in an intelligent and adequate way. Mm -hmm. I'm having a hard time thinking of anyone who's only published two, who only published two books in his career, um, but whose two books were so um, powerful. So one fiction, one nonfiction, and both of them, ended up becoming highly acclaimed. It's hard to think of anybody who's had that kind of a legacy with only two books, right? Well, and as you pointed out, one nonfiction and one fiction, Harper Lee immediately came to mind. Yeah, with. as far as, yeah. And that second book, I don't know that she really wanted it published, but... Right. Young Men and Fire is used not just to teach firefighting tactics, but... Um, somebody was telling me they used it in business or something. Oh, for, really? Uh, yeah. Huh. I can't remember the exact application, but 
you know, the whole idea of, and he was heavily influenced by Ehlers Koch for sure, who was kind of a maverick in the Forest Service and in the 1930s was, you know, vocally questioning, should we be suppressing fire at all costs? Oh, really? Oh, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. you know, modern Forest Service approach to fire is basically Ehlers Koch was right. Mm. It's like, you got to let them burn. Mm. Uh, Man Gulch Fire uh, has contributed a lot over the years. Uh, I just got an email this morning from somebody who said they're doing a a video uh, story for Montana Public TV, I think, about a fire uh, that became very dangerous sometime in the past. I don't remember the exact year. But uh, the people who were on it followed the lessons of Man Gulch to the letter, and everyone survived. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's not always the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other book that I'm trying to work on is uh, about the Yarnell Hill fire. Uh, yesterday, the 30th, was the anniversary date of that. And it's a very tragic story because the Grand Mountain Hotshots, 19 of whom were killed on that fire, had been to South Canyon. Uh, they had seen the trouble there that was like the trouble on Man Gulch. Mm-hmm. They thought this will never happen to us. And what happened on Yarnell Hill was a mirror image. So you can't ever stop it. Fire is very dangerous stuff, and people are going to get killed. I'm sorry. That's the never again thing. Is it sounds great, mm-hmm. but it doesn't happen. Uh, this is a dangerous environment. You have to be aggressive to be out there. If you are not aggressive, don't go, mm-hmm. because uh, it's aggressive. You have to match it. You have to know when to get out. True, and you have to get out aggressively. <laughs> But you cannot fight fire if you're a let's hold back, let's sit on our uh, hands and never do anything. That's not the game. That's not the kind of people who are out there. Young Men and Fire is the anthem uh, of smoke jumping. Uh, It has lessons, but the lessons were embalmed in the 10 standard orders and then later in the watch-out situations. Mm. Uh, those are formal, specific lessons, taken. some of them taken from Man Gulch. But Young Men and Fire has a bigger, uh, different kind of role. If you want to have a sense of something larger than yourself, something larger than a set of rules and a number of S-courses in uh, fire science, and you want to feel part of a big culture, then you read Young Men on Fire, and suddenly you're part of something that's enormous and worthy and continues on, and you can identify with those people. Yes, learn from them, learn what they did, sure, discuss those things. But it's bigger than that, I think. And that has been its uh, enduring quality. You asked me to read the end paragraphs of A River on Shred, and they are in the movie. They are read in the movie. Mm-hmm. And Mr. Redford uh, went looking for someone to read them. Uh, who had the proper attitude and the proper voice. And they said, well, tell us what you want, Bob. And so he said, well, all right, I'll record what I want. So he recorded what he wanted. He read it. And so they went out looking for it, and they'd bring back samples. He said, ah, no, that's no good. That's no good. And finally they said to him, you know, Bob, you did it. (laughs) And the movie is Robert Redford reading the following lines. Now, nearly all those I loved and did not understand when I was young, are dead. But I still reach out to them. Of course, now I am much too old to be a fisherman. And now, of course, I usually fish the big waters alone. Although some friends think I shouldn't.
like many fly fishermen in western Montana, where the summer days are almost arctic in length, I often do not start fishing until the cool of the evening. Then, in the arctic half-light of the canyon, all existence fades to a being with my soul and memories and sounds of the big Blackfoot River and a four-count rhythm and the hope that a fish will rise. Eventually, all things merge into one and a river runs through it. The river was cut by the world's great flood and runs over rocks from the basement of time. On some of the rocks are timeless raindrops. Under the rocks are the words. And some of the words are theirs. I'm haunted by waters. <laughs>